So I do want to uh, turn to Luke chapter 2, uh, well, starting in verse 22. There's two episodes at the end of chapter 2 that describe Jesus at the temple. And the first is Jesus at the temple as a baby. And then there is this fascinating story of Jesus at the temple as a boy. Um, so I want to look briefly at these. I want to bear in mind as we read these, think about these big themes, these big ideas that the Holy Spirit has uh, inspired Luke to emphasize throughout his gospel and in the, the book of Acts and, and see how these themes are continuing to be expanded and explored as we read these stories that we're so familiar with. And yet as we look, we see that even in these early most stories, we are seeing the, the, the big themes, the salvation that's made available not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well, the, the hand of God involved in the life of mankind, uh, and particularly with the, the emphasis on, on caring for the lessers and sort of the great reversal uh, so that those who, uh, the righteous poor, the righteous uh, widows and lessers are, are blessed and cared for by God. So I'm going to briefly, again, I, we'll keep it a little bit briefer than we might normally like, but I'll, uh, I'm going to read verses 22 to 40, and then we'll talk just a little bit about some of what we see there. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there's a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I think someone's cell phone. It's probably Mark's. So if we go back to verse 22, we get the, the setting. It says 40 days after the birth of Jesus. Um, because 40 days after the birth of a son, a woman was to go to the temple and be purified. And as the firstborn son, Jesus would have also been dedicated to the Lord at that time. <clears throat> and then as we look at, at the nature of what they're doing in verse 24, it talks about the sacrifices they're making. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Well, if you go back into Leviticus, there were a couple of alternatives for this sacrifice. Ideally, you were sacrificing larger animals. Um, a lamb, I believe, uh, two lambs. 
But if you were poor, you were allowed to bring a turtle dove, two turtle doves, two pigeons. And so this tells us a little bit just about the social status of Mary and Joseph. They're not rich. Um, probably it implies they have not yet been visited by the Magi, because if they had received gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, they probably would have been able to afford the better offering. And then as we move into verse 25, we get into the substance of what I, what I want to talk about from this passage, which is where we see the Holy Spirit once again showing up. Remember, the Holy Spirit shows, the work of the Holy Spirit is all throughout the book of Luke. He's a very active player. Luke does, it highlights the activity of the Holy Spirit multiple times. Then we get into the book of Acts, and, and really the primary figure in the book of Acts is not Peter, and it's not Paul. It's the Holy Spirit. It's what Peter and Paul do with the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the way the Spirit works through them. He is the primary actor mentioned some, I think, 50-some times in the book of Acts. Um, so once again, the, so the Holy Spirit is on Simeon, this older gentleman who is in the temple. He's guiding him. He's, in some sense, speaking through him, because obviously what he says becomes Scripture. And uh, what he gets into when he gives this praise is we see this, the salvation, right, already. You have a 40-day-old baby. And Simeon is pronouncing his purpose, salvation, right? And not just salvation for the Jews. He's not just their traditional, what they were expecting, uh, Messiah, right? So Simeon, inspired by the Spirit, knows that Jesus has come for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. He's the light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So we'd seen kind of early on, like, Zechariah kind of didn't get that global picture. He was really focused on, you know, John the Baptist and what he was going to do for the, for the people of Israel. Uh, Simeon sees the bigger picture of God. The Spirit is on him and, and revealing to him that bigger picture uh, in, in verses 30 through 32. And he gives us a little, little foreshadowing uh, as we get into verses 33 and 35, and he, and he turns to Mary and, and really describes kind of what's going to happen, the significance of Jesus, the controversy that's going to be around Jesus, the suffering that she's going to experience personally as a mom as she sees her son ultimately rejected and executed. And so it's just, it, to me, it's fascinating, right, the, the way even early on the Holy Spirit is revealing what's going to happen, the big picture. Of course, the Old Testament has explained all along what's going to be happening, but but here the Spirit, even for this, at this very time, is, is trying to get Mary ready for what's going to be happening, Joseph ready for what's going to be happening. And I just, I, I think, I don't, I'm amazed at the way the Spirit works. Uh, and again, these are the kinds of stories we sometimes gloss over or skip over, like, oh, I know that story. But if you look in here, you see the, the whole story of what's going to happen with Jesus. And then in verse 36, we get into the story of Anna, a righteous widow. And so she's another of these figures that we've encountered who was, who was kind of unfortunate, right? In the culture of the day, she would have been viewed as un, you know, kind of unfortunate. She'd been a widow for many, many years. Um, but she's very righteous, very focused on going to the temple. And so she's just another example of these righteous and holy people that we encounter in these first two chapters of Luke, right? Like Elizabeth and Zechariah, uh, who God is who are woven into the story of God, who are woven into the story of the Savior. Uh, here, uh, just demonstrating that reversal, the way Jesus and God are the friend of, of the widows. And we saw the shepherds earlier and so forth. And we get that, that emphasis if we then go down after that 
Uh, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So we see this sort of fourfold growth of Jesus that Luke is telling us about. He's growing in size, right? He's growing in strength. He's growing in wisdom. He's growing in the favor of God. And we talked last week about how every element of the, the Jesus birth narrative is there was a parallel in the John birth narrative, and at each point, at the parallel point, it's making clear Jesus is greater than John, right? So there was a statement about John's growth. He only had two, two-fold growth in the scripture. Jesus has fourfold growth. Jesus is greater than John. And we see that John had a pretty significant movement, uh, so it was important for people to know. Yeah, John was, a, was an important prophet of God, but Jesus is the Messiah. You've got you to gotta move your loyalty. And then we see this, this next little story, um, which is fun. We don't have a lot of time to dig into it. Um, but it's the this, this story of Jesus as a boy, right? He's, he's 12. He's not quite an adult in Jewish culture. At 13, you're responsible uh, as a man and under the law. So part of the point is that here, he's, we're going to see this great story. He has all this wisdom, and he's not yet a man. Uh, So we see this story starting in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So clearly they're not helicopter parents the way we are today in our culture because uh, they managed to get travel for a day without realizing that they'd left their son in, in Jerusalem, uh, obviously in a lar- traveling in a large group. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And one important thing we're seeing out of this story, one reason I think that Luke is sharing the story, is it's illustrating the truth of verse 40, right? Verse 40 said that Jesus grew and became strong and was filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. And now we're immediately told a story that illustrates how that's true. How here, even as a, as a 12-year-old boy, he's not only asking really smart questions, and we've probably all encountered kids who ask smart questions, I mean, they're the, they may be the minority, but we've definitely encountered kids who ask smart questions, but he's giving really good answers, too. Everyone's amazed at what he knows. And this is really, we see, too, here, this growing awareness that he has, this very sharp, clear awareness he has, even at a 12-year-old. He knows, right? And it's, a, it's clearly set in contrast, right? Mary's like, oh, your dad and I were really upset. He's, no, I'm in my father's house. He has a clear awareness who his father is. His father is God that he is the Son of God. Uh, this is not something that, you know, is a mystery to him, and then he realizes it was when he's 30. No, he is clearly, keenly aware of exactly who he is. He is the Son of God, and he has this wisdom and knowledge that is beyond all people. 
and it is not just a matter of being well trained, right? Because he is functioning in a way that is not what a child in those days could function as, because he's got all this knowledge already. He's got all this wisdom. So, exactly, precocious in a way that is beyond even normal precocious. He is demonstrating already that idea that he is the son of God from day one. And that's, I think, important for us to realize, too, if we think about it, we don't, we don't have to deal with it, but there was a lot of early heresy, and you know, there were early heresies that said, well, he wasn't always the son of God, it came on him as a spirit later in life. We don't get much of that, we don't really get that in our day and age. But 2,000 years ago, that was a common heresy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so I think one of the valuable things we have in this passage is it makes it clear, this is not something that came on Jesus when he was 30, where he was an ordinary guy for 30. He was the Son of God from day one, of course, and you mentioned Arians, and we do have Arians today. Um, Jehovah's Witness are, are Arians, right? They don't believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Right. Uh, so what's the significance of, of kind of these birth stories, and why did we talk about it? I just want to you know, briefly highlight you know, the way we see, you know, what's our takeaway as we look at these these stories we know so well, and so we kind of recite them by memory at Christmas, and then we pack them away and we think about them again the next year at Christmas. And it's really these great ideas that God is present and active in history, and He is deeply involved in mankind, and that He is sovereign over everything, and that He uses His sovereignty to provide the opportunity of salvation for all who will trust in Jesus Christ. That this thing that He set in motion immediately after the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3, is now in serious, you know, we're, we're in a different stage of salvation history now because the Messiah has come. So that's, that's kind of the, the big stuff from, from the birth narrative that I wanted to highlight just briefly uh, as we're kind of looking to find, still working to find the right pace on Wednesday nights and, and so forth. But any quick questions on that? Otherwise, I want to spend some time talking about the temptation. Okay, okay. So we are going to jump ahead. Um, there's nothing. I, I would encourage you, by all means, to read chapter three again at, at your uh, as you have the opportunity. We're not going to talk about chapter three, but chapter three is a cool chapter. It's a it, it's one where you read about John the Baptist's ministry, and you kind of see the nature of what he's doing in his ministry. And it's a very, very direct and powerful call to repentance. Uh, it's very focused on God's impending judgment. It's very focused on issues of justice and, and mercy and compassion towards those who are less fortunate in society. Uh, it is also a powerful call for the powerful, or it's a strong call for the powerful to stop abusing their power. And Luke chapter 3 gives us the clearest understanding of what John taught. Right? Most of the Gospels say John called for repentance. Luke gives us some, some detail on what that call for repentance looked like. And it really does involve, I mean, he talks to different power groups, groups with authority, you know, soldiers don't do this, tax collectors don't do this. And basically, stop abusing your position, stop taking advantage of the weak, 
Take care of people. Turn to God. Chapter 3 also includes the genealogy of Jesus. This time, so if you, if you look at the beginning of Matthew, that's a genealogy through Mary. Here we get a genealogy through Joseph. Now the genealogy from Matthew, I believe, went back to um, Abraham. It's emphasizing the, Jesus' Davidic nature, the fact that he is the, the rightful Davidic king. Here in Luke, it goes all the way back to Adam. And I think what we're seeing emphasized here, amongst other things, is his common relationship with all mankind. We're to that idea. He's not just here for the descendants of Abraham. He is here to seek and save the lost among all the descendants of Adam. And this is very important. So here we are at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, and we're going to be looking at chapter 4, ideally verses 1 through 30, but I have a feeling we're just going to get through 1 through 13 today. But if you read 1 through 30, what you see is it, it's two separate sections. One is on the temptation. The other is his initial ministry in Nazareth. And they really serve to illustrate very directly the kind of Messiah that Jesus is and the kind of Messiah that Jesus is not. And the first section on the temptation is all about the kind of Messiah that Jesus is not. And the temptations that are being offered by the devil are are temptations to be a specific kind of Messiah. One that's built on power, one that's seeking earthly rule, one that's you know all about just what's good for me or what's comfortable, let me demonstrate power, the kinds of things there. Whereas Jesus rejects all those, and then he goes to Nazareth, and he says, this is the kind of Messiah I am. So let's read about the temptation, and then we'll talk about the temptation some. You know, you wish you knew, you knew even more. It's such an intriguing thing, but there's a reason we know what we know in the Scripture. And as I say, it's because that's what God knows we need to know. No point in speculating on what's not here because God didn't think we needed to know. So beginning in chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, which is right after his baptism. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you, if, and I want to emphasize this, what the devil says, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God. Throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So one thing Luke wants to make sure we know right off the bat about this episode is that this is spirit-driven. 
right? We have two references to the Holy Spirit in verse 1, that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, and then he was led by the Spirit. This encounter with the devil is a divine appointment. It is not some random encounter. It is not some Satan taking an opportunity. Satan probably thought he was taking an opportunity. This was a divine appointment. And so Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. And again, depending on translation, you say desert or wilderness, it's the same word in Greek, the same word in Hebrew. In both cases, the Greek and Hebrew both translate out as either wilderness or desert. Um, so it's sort of your preference. So he's in the wilderness. I think we hear desert and it seems one thing, but it's all pretty deserted looking when you get in those pictures of the wilderness in Israel. You see those pictures today. It's pretty pretty sparse. Um, my... My, I'm taking a Hebrew class right now on the front page as you log into the class is this picture of the, Israel, the desert and then it just says it's not all this bleak. Uh, so it seems uh, so he's there for 40 days and if we and we always think about these three you know, three temptations by the devil, but if you read the language right he says he was led in there for 40 days being tempted by the devil that's a it's a the participle here is really describes it he's being tempted all the way through the 40 days. It's not just a 40 days of sitting, you know, 39 days of sitting bored and then one day of action when Satan shows up. Jesus is being tempted for 40 days. We just don't know the details. It culminates in this encounter with Satan. Uh, but Satan is clearly at work all the way along. And I think we can imagine what some of the temptations might be if we're out in the wilderness not eating for 40 days. Uh, all kinds of temptations. But he's, he's tempted all the way through. I think it's important that we recognize that that what's going on in the wilderness here very much parallels the events of the Israelites in the wilderness in their 40 years. So 40 days of Jesus, 40 years for the Israelites. But there is some powerful parallels here because the temptations that Jesus resists that we read about compare very much to some things that Israel utterly failed at. Right? So Jesus is tempted by food. He's hungry. Use your power to take care of yourself, make bread. Well, think about, if you know the story of the Exodus, how often the Israelites sinned against God over issues of food. Oh, we don't want food. We want to go back to Egypt. Oh, we don't like this manna. Give us meat. Oh, you know. The number of times that they were tempted by their stomach and they failed while they were in the wilderness. But Jesus was tempted but did not fail. Jesus is tempted to worship someone other than God. And again, think about those years in the wilderness, how often the Israelites failed and worshipped someone other than the God who was visibly present and leading them out of Egypt through all these miracles, and yet somehow they still managed to go off and worship something else. So they were tempted to worship someone else, and they failed. Jesus is offered, he's tempted, you know, here... Not only do it just to satisfy yourself, but do it and I'll give you power, and he does not fail. He is tempted to test God, put God to the test. And, and again, think about how often in the Exodus, and, and, in, and, you know, and as you read the book of Numbers and things like that, how often the Israelites tested God in the wilderness. They put him to the test time after time. Again, you, you'll see that language used quite often in, in the, the Pentateuch, in the, the narrative of their time in the wilderness that they have put the Lord to the test. They've tested him with their root, you know, their will. They've tested him in this way. They've tested him in this way. So, so we have these three things that very powerfully te- 
parallel the failings of Israel. And so part of the message here is to really say that that Jesus is the perfection that Israel was supposed to be but failed. Jesus is the new and perfect Israel. We don't always realize how often in the Old Testament God describes Israel as his son. Exodus 4.22 is one example, but there's a number of locations. Uh, But I'll just read you Exodus 4.22. And this is uh, God talking to Moses. He says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. So Israel is often called the firstborn son. And Israel was the son that failed the tests over and over and over again in the course of their 40 years in the wilderness. And interestingly, if you look at Luke chapter 3 in the genealogy of Jesus, at the very end of the genealogy, it says the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. It describes Adam as the son of God because he created Adam. And Adam, too, failed the test, as we certainly know. So Jesus alone, out of all passes the tests, passes the temptations. He is the true, perfect, unique, eternal Son of God. So in one sense, He is everything that Israel was supposed to be but failed. He is everything that Adam was supposed to be but failed. He is the perfect Son of God. And that's really the bottom line message is being presented here, but I also want to make sure we don't lose what the significance of this temptation is for us. And to me, it really comes down to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, to understand why this temptation is so important to us, this 40 days in the wilderness. The writer says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, and that word then is important, right? This is saying, this next statement is the result of the fact that Jesus passed these temptations without ever sinning. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The very privilege of prayer that we enjoy tonight, that we exalt in, that, that should be one of our greatest joys as a Christian This privilege comes from the fact that Jesus resisted every temptation that the devil threw at him. Now we have just a few minutes left, so we'll we'll talk a little about these temptations and the 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 conclusion there and uh, in detail, and then we'll we'll pray and break apart. So verses two through four, we see the first of the temptations. Right, he's been in the desert, he's eaten nothing, and so the devil said to him, "If you are if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread." And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So here the devil comes when Jesus is really, really hungry, right? We talked about being hungry this on Sunday in, in church. Uh, so here he is, really hungry. This would be terrible for me, right? I'd be so hangry. It's not funny. And so Satan shows up and says, why don't you use your power just to take care of yourself? Make this stone turn into bread. 
So the temptation here is to use power, right? It's not that it's wrong for him to make bread. Jesus makes bread for five, you know, for the 5,000. He makes bread for the 4,000. The temptation is to make bread for himself, to, to serve his own needs rather than relying on God, rather than depending on God to provide for everything he needs. That's the temptation. And we, you know, if you think about, I think, John chapter 4, right, the woman at the well, and Jesus tells his disciples, I have food you you don't know about. And they're like, oh, he must have gone off and bought lunch. You know, he's like, no, my food is to do the will of my father. And so this is the point, right? Here's the temptation. Make food for yourself rather than doing the will of your father, rather than relying on God. But there is, I think, a second aspect in here of the temptation, and it comes in this phrase, if you are the son of God. And we don't know, I don't know from that, does that mean that Satan isn't certain? Does it say that he wants, is he trying to get Jesus to doubt his sonship? Or is he trying to provoke him to pride? Right? I mean, you say, hey, oh yeah, you think you're the son of God? Well, you know, I don't believe it. Yeah, so then what's our human temptation? Well, I'm going to show you. So it's not clear what the temptation is, but there is clearly some temptation about this, whether it's about doubt or to try and get him to doubt or whether it's going to show off, um, whatever. Now, we know that God had already declared Jesus' sonship at his baptism. There was no reason for Jesus to doubt but here it is, and that, and I think that I think it matters. Uh, I think it's important to not lose track of this, right? Because again, our prideful response as human beings is like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a trick to show you. I got all kinds of power." But instead, Jesus, what does he do? He rebuts him with scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy eight three, but I want to read Deuteronomy eight one through three to kind of get a sense or flavor of uh, of really all the connotations of what Jesus was saying here, because he gives him a kind of a, a mini-sermon in the course of using this verse. Because Deuteronomy chapter 8, the first three verses say, The whole commandment that I command you today you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. This is really speaking to the extreme importance of, of following this law, following these rules. He says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, right? So here's an interesting thing. He's bringing, Jesus is intentionally bringing in this wilderness experience while he's in the wilderness. And he is really bringing to light the failures of Israel when they were in the wilderness while he is in the wilderness resisting Satan. So that he might humble you, right? Why did God put them in 40 years in the wilderness? That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Aha! So this is kind of, I think what's in Jesus' mind. This is his understanding of what this experience is about. This is the test for Jesus. Will he rely on God? Will he keep those commandments or not? And then it comes to what Jesus quoted to him. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So that's, that's what he's doing, right? He's bringing into view this whole wilderness experience of Israel and saying the whole point of that, the essence of this verse is really about not just about provision of food, but it's about that reliance on God, that full obedience to God. So we're running out of time, but we get the second temptation. I don't see Mark back here, so I'm just going to abuse the time a little bit. Talk about the second temptation. So verses 5 through 8 shows us the second temptation. He says that the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. And if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. 
And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So, here the temptation, I think, is twofold. One, it's about power. But I think we also need to recognize that it's about an offer to take the easy way out. Because the thing that Satan is offering him, right, authority over all the kingdoms, is precisely the thing that is given to Jesus after the cross. Because in Matthew 28, 18, what does he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he's, Jesus will receive what Satan is offering, but he has to receive it through the cross. The temptation is to take the shortcut, just grab some earthly power today, and never do the mission that he is here to do for God. So this is important. Now, I mean, you might ask, can Satan really offer this kind of power up? Well, Satan may be lying or exaggerating a bit, but we do understand from Scripture, right, that God is sovereign over everything at all times, but that Satan has been given authority. You know, he's called the prince of the air by Paul. Uh, he has given, been given some measure of authority temporarily over the earth. And so here is this offer. Seems to be probably a legitimate offer. I'm going to give you some amount of power, earthly power. Right? And Jesus returns with Scripture, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This is Deuteronomy 6.13. I would put in a plug here for Scripture memorization. Right? Because notice that, you know, when Jesus is tempted, what does he come up with? Not, let me grab my smartphone and look up a verse. Let me go find a scroll. It's... I know the word of God cold, and he delivers that. And then we get the final temptation. Uh, I'm going to stop there, I think, at the final temptation, because uh, I want to come back and take some time next week to read Deuteronomy um, 6, 10 through 19, because he's going to quote here Deuteronomy 6, 16. So I don't think it's an accident that he's brought in view both Deuteronomy 6, 13 and 6, 16. Um, that section of Deuteronomy chapter 6 really gets into where Israel failed, and where Jesus didn't. So I want to come back to that topic um, next week. But, you know, as the, at the, at the, the quick headline, of course, is we get to see that Satan can quote Scripture. Uh, out of context, but he can quote Scripture. So let me stop here for questions and prayer, and then we'll let people get on with their evenings. Yes, ma'am. Rain and the yeah. I don't specifically know, other than it shows up a lot. Has anybody else heard any plausible explanations on kind of the specific significance of the number forty? Because it's definitely in there a lot. It represents kind of a season of completeness of some way. Yeah, and there's even more than that because, like, if you look at the life of Moses, it's divided into three forty-year chunks. Right, forty years in Egypt, forty years in uh, uh, as a shepherd, and then forty years. Exodus and leading the people. Forty days for Jesus. Yep. Yeah, that's a good one. I'll try and do, see if anybody's got a plausible theory uh, versus just a random theory. There's a. Was it okay? Good. Good. Yeah. Yes, because it wouldn't have been safe, just one young woman on her own on the road. It is a long way. But they did travel further in a day than we tend to when we don't have a car. 
uh, they were kind of used to it, so they do. I think they typically could cover 15 to 20 miles a day on foot, if I remember right. That's more than I want to be walking. What's that? Yes, they did. Because it's a no, no. You don't start in the noontime in the desert, particularly. All right, well, let me pray, and then we'll uh, turn things over to the choir, or at least when Mark gets here. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We just sit in wonder at your son, Jesus, Lord, that he, here he is, the eternal son of God, yet he voluntarily entered into our world. He voluntarily underwent these tremendous temptations. Lord, sometimes I think we underestimate these temptations because we think, well, he's God, so what would tempt him? But the point is they were temptations. So he was tempted just as we are, but he, unlike us, he never failed. And so, Lord, I pray that we will just never lose our wonder at him, our marvel at him, our love for him, because in his perfection, he still loves us. In his perfection, he went to the cross for us. Lord, let us be people who live in light of that as we go out of this place and share your good news in the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.